I must tell you that I'm so pleased um, that the Interdisciplinary Humanities Center, the UCSB Arts and Lectures, my own department, Religious Studies, and Congregation B'nai B'rith, where I'm a member, um, the Jewish Federation of Santa Barbara and the Santa Barbara Hillel have joined the Taubman Foundation to sponsor this event. All of us know that the Bible is a foundational document for who we are and it can be read and understood in so many ways. It will tell us about the history of ancient Israel. It will tell us about the politics of ancient Israel. It will tell us about the economies of ancient Israel. And it will reveal something of the material culture of ancient Israel. Uh, and of course, Israel's long wrestling with the sacred. Robert Alter is professor of Hebrew and comparative literature at UC Berkeley where he has taught and written for 40 years. He is arguably one of the most influential scholars writing on the Hebrew Bible as a literary text. He is the author of a huge number of influential scholarly uh, and popular books. Um, among those books of so, so much importance are The Art of Biblical Narrative, which he published in 1983, and then four years later, The Art of Biblical Poetry. Both of these works have revealed new understandings of, the bibli of biblical Hebrew prose and poetry. His Genesis, Translation and Commentary, which he published in 1997, has been universally uh, received with the highest praise. His Literary Guide to the Bible, which he published in 1990, which he edited with Frank Kermode, is now one of the standard scholarly works that we use day in and day out in biblical studies to understand the literary dimensions of um, the Hebrew Bible. Professor Alter has been described by the New York Sun as one of the best literary scholars alive. And thanks to our friends at Borders, several of Professor Alter's books are available for purchase and for signing immediately after um, his uh, presentation. But I must tell you that we've invited him because of this, The Five Books of Moses, translated by Robert Alter, which he published uh, in 2004. This is stunning. It's absolutely beautiful, too. I, I mean, the feel of it, it has this wonderful slipcover. The type and the font is just uh, stunning. Um, it is a stunning translation and it contains a commentary which is the synthesis of traditional sources and literally decades and decades of scholarly um, uh, commentary. In this translation, he resolves some of the most difficult passages in the Torah, but always Alter allows the beauty of the text and its human dimensions to shine forth. I think that Rob, uh, Robert Alter's translation will be widely respected as one of the greatest translations of the Torah in the 20th century. Tonight, Professor Alter will speak on the Bible through literary eyes. Please welcome Robert Alter. Thank you very much, uh, Professor Hecht, for your generous words. I'm delighted to be here, and um, I will plunge into my subject immediately. Now, 
A question which may occur to uh, at least some of you out here is um, what really does literature have to do with the Bible? After all, the Bible is a, a collection of religious texts uh, and to the extent that you talk about it as, as literature, you might be doing something rather frivolous, uh, imposing a merely aesthetic char uh, category on these texts. The fact of the matter is that, that there's no split, there's no contradiction between literature and anything else. The, the greatest spiritual seriousness, the greatest uh, philosophical probing. Uh, if you look at the texts that are assembled in the Hebrew Bible, the vast bulk of them are cast either in narrative or poetry. And it's my contention that in order to see what's going on religiously, in order to see what the precise nature of the monotheistic revolution effected by the biblical writers, you have to be able to understand the literary form in which they work. Uh, by that understanding, you get a more nuanced perception of how they saw human nature, how they saw society, how they saw history, and so forth. Now, the, the next question that might occur is, uh, why does anyone need a guide to a literary understanding of the Bible? After all, just to think of narrative, if uh, you read a story, you understand the story, you appreciate it, it moves you or it doesn't move you, and that's it, some people would say. Uh, and of course, in a, to a certain degree, this has to be true of the Bible, or all of us, uh, Jews, Christians, and secularists, wouldn't have continued to read it with such avidness over the generations. I mean, to, to take a kind of obvious example, when David is informed of the death of his son Absalom in uh, Second Samuel, uh, most of you will remember that he goes up to the the, uh, uh, the tower overlooking on set in the wall of the city Machanaim, where he's made his headquarters, and he says, "Absalom, Absalom." Absalom, my son Absalom, would that I had died in your stead. And to anyone who, who has been a son or, or has had a son, uh, you, or a daughter for, for that matter, this immediately speaks to you. It, it, it's heart-wrenching and, and you don't need any complicated uh, understanding, analysis to, to understand it. Nevertheless, I think something has happened in our relation to the Bible, which I'll sketch out very briefly, uh, that has caused problems. There was, I believe, a set of conventions and techniques that were second nature to people in the ancient Hebrew culture that in the course of time were forgotten. I think there's an obvious reason why they, they were forgotten. I'll just say this about convention. It's so much part of our second nature when we read 
the body of literature that's native to us that we don't even have to be told it's a convention. For example, you open a book and uh, the first line of the story says, once upon a time in a land far away. Now we immediately know, because we've grown up in this culture, maybe if um, you came from Bangladesh, you would not make this happen. We immediately know that a story that begins with these words is not uh, a, uh, a realistic story. Uh, it's not going to read like a novel by Margaret Atwood or, or uh, Philip Roth, but it's a fairy tale. And so we won't be surprised if a fairy godmother appears, if there are three sons and the third son uh, turns out to be the, the, the one who has a great destiny, uh, if pumpkins turn into carriages and so on and so forth. Because that's all part of the baggage uh, of the fairy tale and the formulaic signal once upon a time in a land far away tells us this, this to us as we begin to read. Now, I think what happened, and when I began working on biblical narrative over 20 years ago, I, I wouldn't, really 25 years ago, uh, I wouldn't have quite described this in these terms, but this dawned on me with the passage of time. Uh, as the centuries wore on, once these works had become part of a religious canon, both Jews and Christians came to regard these works as divinely inspired and also as sources of inspiration for the reader, as sources of moral guidance, in the case of Jews, as the uh, sources of proof texts for the articulation of the law and uh, as uh, a body of theology. And with all those considerations, uh, we underwent a kind of cultural amnesia so that the ways in which the poems and the stories worked as poems and stories that were... Uh, pretty well understood by the ancient audience, we cease to understand. So uh, what I am proposing is that is necessary is a kind of labor of literary archaeology. That is, if, uh, at least uh, if you think of this loose analogy, just as the archaeologist digs through the layers in the archaeological tale and finds the, the shards and fragments and carefully brushes away the, the accumulated soil and then fits the pieces together and in doing that reconstructs the material culture of 3,000 years ago, I think that we have to do to the best of our abilities something analogous in the case of the Hebrew Bible. Now, what I'd like to do here is to propose one principle. Obviously, this is a little too simple. You can't reduce any body of literature to a single principle. But I'd like to propose one principle that does have many different manifestations in both uh, the prose and the poetry. And this has to do with the use of repetition.
that is repetition is all over the place in, in biblical writing and it's a little surprising that it should be so common in the prose narratives because the prose narratives are famous for being economical being breathlessly terse and yet uh, even their things get repeated all, all the time so what I would like to propose is this as a general rule of thumb whenever you encounter repetition in the Bible you have to not only register the fact that something is being repeated you have to ask yourself what is changed in the seeming repetition what has changed in the seeming repetition even though I'm going to focus chiefly on uh, the stories I'd like to begin with uh, an example of how this principle works in poetry now biblical poetry we've understood at least for the last three centuries is based on a principle of parallelism parallelism of meaning coupled actually by parallelism of stressed syllables and often parallelism of syntax too between the two halves of the, the line that is the typical um, line of biblical poetry has two more or less equal components. There are some lines that have three components. I promise not to get too technical. Uh, uh, th that will be suffice. So here is a schematic illustration from, uh, I think it's actually the second piece of poetry that appears in, in the book of Genesis. Uh, there's a mysterious character about whom we know almost nothing except this poem, uh, who chants this poem as a kind of victory song to his two wives who are named Ada and Sila. And this is the first line of the poem. Ada and Sila, hear my voice. O wives of Lamech, give ear to my utterance. Now this is ver a very neat illustration. You have uh, First, the two women addressed by their primary names, Ada and Sila. And so in the second half of the line, instead of calling them by the, their names, he calls them, O wives of Lamech. And then he says, Hear my voice, Shma'an Koli. And then in the second uh, half of the line, he says, Give ear or hearken, Hazena Imrati. Give uh, give ear to my utterance. So everything is exactly parallel, right? The the wives uh, and their names uh, <clears throat> uh, listen, give ear, uh, voice, utterance. But this, although it's a schematic illustration of how the system of poetry works, is not typical. Um, <clears throat> what is typical is that as things seem to be repeated in the second half of the line they are I would estimate in maybe 80% of the lines, 85% of the lines, which is enough to make a rule things are stepped up they're intensified, they're focused they uh, become more concrete and I'll give you three brief examples I'll begin with numbers. Now, if in fact 
the system of repetition between the two halves of the line were based on actual synonymity as it is in the example I just gave you from Lamech's chant, you would expect if in the case of numbers that the same number would appear in the first half and the second half. That, that is, if you said six in the first half of the line, you would say, even though you can't say this in biblical Hebrew, half a dozen in, in the second half of the line. But that never happens. The invariable rule is that if a number is introduced in the first half of the line, it has to be increased either by um, uh, a decimal place or by the, the, a decimal place plus the number or some, something of that sort or, or simply going from adding one number to the number that appears. So here is a line of verse from Shirata Azinu from the Song of Moses in Deuteronomy 32. How could one pursue a thousand and two give chase to ten thousand? So you go from one to two and from a thousand to ten thousand. Now, uh, l let me give you a di different kind of illustration. It does not involve um, uh, um, Numbers also from the same text in Deuteronomy 32. He suckled him honey from the rock and oil from the flinty stone. Now, um, th th this is a, a verse that describes um, God sustaining Israel in the wilderness. So, honey from the rock, oil from the flinty stone. Well, to begin with, Honey from the rock is a kind of natural event. That is, you could find honeycombs on a rocky slope. But um, uh, oil from a flint stone is, you don't get oil out of a stone, so it's totally miraculous. But what's more interesting, and this is absolutely characteristic, if you have, in the first half of the line, a general term occurs... It's the, the term tzur, rock. And then in the second half, you have a specific instance of that term, which is often a more intense uh, instance. So you have chalmish tzur. Uh, but by the way, the first term is selah. My, my memory uh, 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 slipped. Um, and then chalmish tzur, the, the flinty stone. Now, a flinty stone is the hardest kind of rock you can imagine. So uh, the, the, uh, uh, the mere stoniness in the first half turns into something more intensified in the second half of the line. Now, a third thing that happens, and with this we will uh, move on from poetry to prose, which may be a relief to some of you, um, there is often narrative development from the first half of the line to the second half of the line. And I'll give you uh, just one instance from the book of Proverbs um, chapter 7. Now that's an instance where the, uh, the whole chapter is a single poem. Uh, it's, it's actually an amusing poem, uh, even though it's an, a didactic poem. It's a warning to the foolish young man to stay away from the temptress. 
Because if she catches you in the streets, she's going to, to lure you to her home. And, and then there's this delightful erotic scene where, where she tells him that she's laid out um, uh, sheets of imported uh, uh, Egyptian linen and she's set a, up out a feast for him and, and he, he doesn't have to worry about her husband because her husband gone off on a business trip and he won't be back for quite a while and uh, the speaker in this poem, the mentor, wants to warn the young man to stay away from, from this kind of woman. So at the beginning of the poem we have this line uh, he goes out into the street when at twilight, at the eve of day, in pitch black night and darkness. Now, a number of biblical scholars say, well, how could this be? Uh, this is a contradiction, so something must be wrong with the second half of the line, and let's delete it uh, as a scribal interpolation. Uh, it's a wonderful illustration for me of where before you start tinkering with the text, you have to have some understanding of how the text is assembled as a, a, a literary artifice. Because if you understand that it's very common to have narrative movement from part A of the line to part B of the line, then this line makes beautiful sense. At twilight, at the eve of day, and bam! At pitch, pitch black night and darkness. And those of you who have been either in Israel or in any place with this latitude know that, that nightfall happens very quickly. So th th this line is a way of dramatizing the danger into which the gullible young man is stepping. One moment it's twilight, the next moment it's pitch black dark, and she's really going to get you if you don't watch out. So. Uh, I start with poetry because I think it provides an instructive illustration of this general principle that poets are not content just to say the same thing again in different words, but they exploit the repetition to do something more, to focus, to move something along a narrative line, to make things uh, more concrete or more intense. And we'll find analogous phenomena in the prose. Okay, <clears throat> to begin with, and here I will be um, quoting um, a few texts from uh, Genesis uh, using my translation. Um, the um, uh, the biblical writers develop what, as far as I can tell, is uh, basically an original literary convention. And it's a convention which I'll call the convention of near verbatim repetition. That is, again and again in biblical narrative, you have the sense that the same thing is being said over again in the same words. That is a kind of schematic sketch of this. Character A says to B, go down to the river and there you will meet a man and you will greet him and tell him I am waiting in the tent. And then B goes down to the river and he encounters the man and he says, you know, A said to me, I should go down to the river and I will meet a man and uh, I tell you that A is waiting in the tent. 
So at first superficial reading, you might say this is a very inefficient way to tell the story, just to, to recycle things. But in fact, it's a very sophisticated literary technique because it's very, very rare for uh, one to encounter a complete verbatim repetition. It seems to be verbatim, but as phrases and clauses and even whole sentences are repeated, little adjustments are made. There are little swerves away from the verbatim. And it's those swerves, and as readers of biblical narrative, I encourage you to begin to look for them. It's those swerves that open up little windows of meaning. So uh, I'll give you uh, one simple example and then a, um, a more uh, complicated example. We have in the stealing of the blessing in Genesis 27, uh, when, as you recall, uh, J Jacob steals his uh, older brother's, uh, Esau's blessing, the story begins this, and it happened when Isaac was old that his eyes grew too bleary to see, and he called to Esau, his older son, and said to him, my son, and he said, here I am, and he said, uh, Look, I have grown old, I know not how soon I shall die, so now go take up, pray, your gear, your quiver, and your bow, and go out to the field and hunt me some game, and make me a dish of the kind that I love, and bring it to me that I may eat, so that I may solemnly bless you before I die. Okay, now, first, as a translator of the Bible, uh, I have to uh, confess that there are certain moments when you come to something in the original, and you say, there's no way to do that in English. And this last little phrase happens to be one of those instances. And I need to explain it because what I'm going to go on to say is contingent on the impact of this phrase. Biblical Hebrew has uh, an intensive form of the personal pronoun. That is, the word nefesh, that word that older translations incorrectly translate as soul, means life breath. But it also means, by extension, my essential self, the real me. So instead of just saying, I will bless you before I die, old Isaac says, so that my essential self may bless you before I die. But that sounds ridiculous in English. So uh, what I did was, uh, l let me assure you the translation is full uh, of painful compromises. Uh, I opted for the compromise of using uh, an adverb, solemnly, to get something of the effect of emphasis of that intensive form uh, of the first person pronoun so that I may solemnly bless you before I die. Okay, now now that you've all had that um, phrase, uh, uh, actually it's a whole clause, uh, lodged in your ear, we jump down a couple of verses in the story. You remember that uh, Mother Rebecca, who favors Jacob, has eavesdropped on this whole conversation. 
And she rushes off to Rebecca and says to, uh, uh, I'm sorry, Rebecca rushes off to Jacob and she says to him, Look, I have heard your father speaking to Esau, your brother, saying, Bring me some game and make me a dish that I may eat, and I shall bless you in the Lord's presence before I die. Now, she does two things with the speech she's overheard. First, she abridges it. And by and large, abridgment is not necessarily that significant. In other words, she says, uh, bring me some game uh, of the sort that she deletes the phase of the sort that I love. Because I, I don't think that's that important. The crucial change here is so that I shall bless you in the Lord's presence before I die. Now let's stop and ask ourselves, what's the difference between saying that my essential self may bless you or that I may solemnly bless you and I may bless you in the Lord's presence or you could also translate that as before the Lord. I think it has to do with the theological weight of the substitution that she makes. In other words, when she decides to put in her husband's mouth the words in the Lord's presence, Adonai, uh, she is reminding her son, this is going to be an irrevocable vow. If you don't get in there, follow my instructions, and grab that blessing for yourself, it's gone forever, because it's Adonai, it's in the Lord's presence. So her decision to switch terms, I think, is part of a calculated motivation of her son, uh, uh, who might well hesitate. In fact, he does hesitate. He's fearful that he will be found out. Now, this phrase uh, rolls by a, a third time in the story. Um, when Jacob comes in with his... Um, uh, mock venison stew that he's made out of lamb um, uh, he, and brings it to his father. Um, um, Jacob said to his father, this is verse 19 of chapter 27, um, I am Esau, your firstborn. I have done as you have spoken to me. Rise, pray, sit up, and eat of my game so that you may solemnly bless you, bless me. And something funny's happening here, right? Uh, Jacob reverts to the first version uh, of, the, um, uh, of his father's words, not to the version that was reported to him. How is it that he kind of hops over his mother's words and seems to get back to, to the uh, original version? Uh, I don't think it's anything to do with accuracy, his having some kind of intuition of what his father really said. It seems to me that at the moment that he's repeating this whole business, um, and he's repeating it as part of a lie. Remember what, what, what heads up this little speech is, I am Esau, your firstborn. Uh, the the theologically fraught phrase in the Lord's presence sticks in his throat. He doesn't want to make it part of the lie. So he 
reverts to a more secular version of the statement where the statement is not a solemn blessing pronounced before the Lord, but it's what we in our terms would call a performative speech act, but still a, a, a secular action. Uh, so it seems, that it, it, and here we're talking about a difference of two words. You have version A, version B, and then we revert to, to, to uh, version A. But if you pay attention to the difference in the repetition, uh, the psychological and the theological dynamics of the story uh, becomes much more sharply defined. Now, I'd like to give you a more complex example of that, um, which is the story that's um, uh, often referred to as the um, wooing of Rebecca in um, uh, Genesis 24. Um, I'll begin, it's a very long chapter and I promise not to read all the way through it, but um, I'll read a chunk at the beginning then we'll skip to a crucial point uh, in the middle of the story. And Abraham was old, advanced in years, and the Lord had blessed Abraham in all things. Again, let that lodge in your ear because it will come back with a surprising elaboration later on. See, I should say this, that this pattern of verbatim, near verbatim repetition can occur not only between two different speakers of more or less the same dialogue, but it can also occur in an interaction between a speaker of dialogue and the narrator. So the narrator says, the Lord had blessed Abraham in all things. And Abraham said to his servant, elder of his household, who ruled over all things that were his, put your hand, pray under my thigh, that I may make you swear by the Lord God of the heavens and God of the earth, that you shall not take a wife for my son from the daughters of the Canaanite in whose midst I dwell. But to my land and to my birthplace you shall go, and you shall take a son for a wife for my son, for Isaac. Just a, a little gloss here. If you're wondering what, what the servant's hand is doing under um, uh, Abraham's thigh, probably the thigh is a euphemism for the testicles, which makes it worse. But uh, actually, as even in the Middle Ages, Avram Ibn Ezra, one of my favorite commentators, uh, observed, there are other cultures in which when somebody exacts a vow from somebody else, he asks that person to hold his testicles, not, not as a, a sexual gesture, but as if to say, I am placing myself utterly in your trust. So uh, the, the most tender and vulnerable part uh, 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 of me is in, in your hands and your, the fulfillment of this vow is in your hands as well. But in any case, one notices um, the grand monotheistic ring of God, uh, the Lord God of the heavens and God of the earth. And then we have that little echo 
to my land and to my birthplace you shall go. It's the echo of God's first words to, Genesis, to um, Abraham at the beginning of Genesis 12. Go you from your uh, land uh, and uh, your uh, birthplace and your father's house and go to the land that I will show you. Notice that in the first iteration here, the, the father's house is not mentioned. And the servant said to him, Perhaps the woman will not come after me, will not want to come after me to this land. Shall I indeed bring your son back to the land you left? And Abraham said to him, Watch yourself, lest you bring my son back there. The Lord, God of the heavens, who took me from my father's house. Okay, now we have the third term from Genesis 12. As first we had. Um, land and birthplace, and now we have Father's house. Uh, and from the land of my birthplace, now we have all three of them together. And who spoke to me and who swore to me, saying, To your seed will I give this land. He shall send his messenger before you, and you shall take a wife for my son from there. And if the woman should not want to go after you, you should be clear of this vow of mine. Only my son you must not bring back there. Okay, the, the servant sets out, uh, the, the, the journey which would take many weeks. Remember, he's traveling from present-day Iraq to uh, present-day uh, Israel. Uh, the other way around, I'm sorry. Um, from present-day Israel to present-day Iraq. The, the journey is affected in one breathless uh, uh, verse. And then he meets Rebecca at the well. I will not take time to read that section, but you remember he prays to the Lord of his master that if uh, the young woman whom I meet at the well should offer me to drink and also offer to water my camels, she is the right girl. And this immediately happens with beautiful and absolutely virginal uh, uh, Rebecca. And uh, immediately the servant rushes up to her, puts a gold ring on her nose and gold bracelets on her arm, and then asks her, asks her uh, whose daughter she is. So he's hustled off. And, of course, uh, she's a cousin. And he's hustled off to her brother's household, her brother uh, Laban. And here's what happens uh, when the servant repeats the story of his mission using more or less the same words. And in a really quick reading, you might think that they're exactly the same words. First he says, I will not eat until I've spoken my word. They, they offer him food. And he said, speak. And he said, I am Abraham's servant. The Lord has blessed my master abundantly. Which is pretty much an echoing of the narrator's first words. And uh, the Lord had blessed Abraham uh, in all things with the minor difference we have abundantly here. But then look what he goes on to say. And he has grown great. He has given him sheep 
and cattle and silver and gold and male and female slaves and camels and donkeys. And Sarah, my wife's, my master's wife, bore a son to my master after she had grown old, and he has given him all that he has. And my master made me swear, saying, You shall not take a wife for my son from the daughters of the Canaanite in whose land I dwell, but to my father's house you shall go, and to my clan, and you shall take a wife for my son. Now, the servant does a number of shrewd things. First, the most obvious is that he does his own little midrashic elaboration of the Lord had blessed my master uh, abundantly, or, or the, Lord, the Lord had blessed Abraham in all things. He starts talking about uh, uh, male slaves and female slaves and camels and donkeys and so forth, which of course are all uh, embodiments of wealth in, in the ancient world, as if to say, Yes, my, my master has done very well. You know, he, he has uh, so many thousand shares of Microsoft and, and uh, real estate in downtown Los Angeles and so on and so So in other words, you have to know that uh, his son is a very good catch, that this is uh, the right kind of should for, for uh, your, your sister, uh, Rebecca. And then he does uh, something else interesting. Instead of to my, my land and my birthplace, which were Abraham's first words, the first term he chooses to introduce, which Abraham only used in his second speech, was my father's house. And to this he adds a word that Abraham did not use, my clan, mishpachti. Again, if you ask yourself, and I find it repeatedly instructive to ask yourself, why the substitution? Why is the repetition being manipulated? If you have to ask yourself why this substitution, it's because he's now back at the site of the Abraham's original father's house, which is a, a sociological term in biblical Hebrew. It's a sociological unit. And he's at the homestead of Abraham's clan. So by choosing these terms and putting them up front in his report, he's conveying a kind of subliminal message to the familial audience. Don't think that because Abraham went to this wild land to the west and be, became a, a, an expat that he's forgotten the family. He still has a sense of the father's house and the clan, and he's somebody you want to be connected with. And, but, but now a still more interesting substitution happens uh, on what I would call the theological level. Um, and he said to me, the Lord, now, um, the Lord, I follow the King James Convention. Uh, when they come across the Tetragrammaton, yud heh vav -Hey, they use, uh, you may have noticed if you scrutinize the King James uh, uh, printing, they use a large uh, uppercase L, and then 
smaller font but still uppercase O-R-D for Lord to indicate that this is a kind of strange uh, feature in the Hebrew. And the Hebrew, of course, is, as most of you know, is odd because you, it's written yud heh vav but Jews always pronounce it as Adonai, as though it were a different word which means uh, derived from the Hebrew word master, a different name for God. So, uh, but th- th- this, the name used is the name that biblical scholars think, I have some reservations of, of, if it's entirely d- dependable, uh, Yahweh. That, that is, it, it's the, um, uh, the proper name of the God of Israel. It's not a, a, a general God name. So, I, I mean, to their ears, it would be like, like, Baal or uh, um, or Ashtoret or uh, uh, some other Canaanite or um, Mesopotamian term uh, as a name for a particular god. So, so that's what's behind the Lord. So he says, uh, perhaps, and I said to my master, perhaps the woman will not come after me. Notice that in his original speech he said, will not want to come after me. It's a tiny change here. He drops the not want. Just, he makes it not... Because he doesn't want to draw too heavy attention to the possibility that Rebecca might not want to do this thing. So he abbreviates that strategically, I think. But then, um, here's what I want to focus on. And he, Abraham, said to me, The Lord in whose presence I have walked shall send his messenger with you, and he shall grant success to your journey, and you shall take a wife for my son from my clan and my father's house. Again, he hits those two buttons of clan and father's house rather than saying land and and, and birthplace. But what's especially interesting here is that you will recall, since you heard it uh, before, that what Abraham actually said was the Lord God of the heavens and God of the earth. And then again he said, the Lord God of the heavens who took me from my father's house and from the land of my birthplace and who spoke to me and swore to me saying to your seed, will I give this land? All of this is deleted. And in place of the deletion, we have in whose presence I have walked. Well, what's going on here? I think what's going on is that this very shrewd servant is aware of the fact that he's speaking to polytheists. So he speaks to polytheists in their own lingo. That that is, it would perplex them for him to say the Lord, that is Yahweh, the uh, God of heavens and God of the earth, because that's nonsense to a polytheist. That is, the the uh, a fundamental supposition of polytheism is that each realm of nature has its own deity. There's a sky god and a land god and a sea god or goddess, uh, a fertility goddess, and so on and so forth. Um, So he doesn't want to confuse them about that. You know, what kind of crazy stuff has uh, our cousin Abraham gotten into? And the second thing that he deletes is covenantal promise to whose seed, who swore to your seed, I will give the, the, this this land, because again they're likely to say, well, nobody promised us a, 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 any uh, a new 
territories to the west or to the east or, or, or anywhere else. Uh, why does Abraham think, isn't he uh, suffering from delusions of grandeur? So all this is quietly edited out, even as the servant goes with the main thrust uh, of his master's uh, speech. Now, there is one other um, uh, kind of amusing uh, switch. Th that is, when I say that, that um, changes are made in the pattern of verbatim repetition, the changes can be uh, the following. Uh, a substitution of one verbal item or one idea for a different one. Uh, a deletion, and we've seen both of these here in the servant's speech, and then of course there can be an elaboration or an addition, as in all the business about uh, camels and, and, and slaves at the beginning of his speech. But there's also another kind of adjustment that can be made, which is to change the order of items reported. And this happens um, in the following way, let's see if I have this, yeah. Uh, the servant then goes on after having reported uh, the story of the vow that his master exacted from him. He goes on to report the story of encountering Rebecca at the well. And as we would expect, his account of it repeats whole phrases and sentences from uh, the actual story as we've just heard it. You haven't just heard it, but uh, uh, I'm sure many of you are quite familiar with it. But in his repetition, here is an interesting difference. Um, after she water, gives him water to drink and also volunteers to water the camels, I asked her, the servant says, saying, Whose daughter are you? And she said, The daughter of Bethuel, son of Nahor, whom Milcah bore him. And I put the ring in her nose and the bracelets on her arms, and I did obeisance and bowed to the Lord and blessed the Lord God of my master Abraham, who guided me on the right way to take the daughter of my master's brother for his son. Okay, now, all these phrases appear in the middle of the story, the part that I didn't read out loud, uh, which reports the encounter at the well. But the swerve from the verbatim here is not in the terms, but in the order of events. Because as I did mention this without re reading it, what happens, in fact, is that he meets Rebecca at the well. She does her st stint stunt and stint with the watering, and immediately rushes up to her and uh, puts the, the nose ring on her and the bracelets on her arm, and then he asks whose daughter she is. Now he is well aware that if he reported that to her kinsmen, he would look like a fool. Because they all understand that the, um, the gold jewelry amounts to betrothal gifts. And you don't give betrothal gifts as until you know what the girl's pedigree is. I mean, that's a crucial 
part of the betrothal because uh, remember in the ancient world, and really I think until the 18th century, a marriage was not primarily a union between two individuals, but between two families or two households. So uh, a, a betrothal emissary has to know what family she comes from. In what actually happened, because he has considerable be belief in the power and efficacy of the Lord, his master's God, as soon as the prayer is fulfilled, he knows that's the right girl. There's no question about it. So he gives her the gifts. And then just uh, for informational sake, he clarifies and finds out, not at all to his surprise, that, that she's a kinswoman uh, of uh, Abraham. So you see that psychologically, um, so sociologically, uh, and theologically, there are all kinds of things going on in the story which you wouldn't entirely grasp unless you, you were keyed into this uh, expectation that when things get repeated, they also get changed. And if you look for the change, th then you begin to see more of what it's all about. Now, in uh, the last few minutes, uh, I, I will spare you any more close readings. I, I think I can do this um, uh, effectively enough just by summary. I'd like to go from the microscopic level of the text to the macroscopic level of the plot of the story. Now, there's another odd kind of repetition that people have observed, and probably most of you in this hall, uh, in reading the Bible, have noted this and maybe been slightly perplexed by it, that approximately the same story seems to be told uh, with different characters. Um, the, um, for example, the, there are um, half a dozen different stories, um, that's not the one I'm going to deal with, in, in which a, a, a young man in a foreign land comes to a, a well and encounters a young woman, or in one case it's seven young women, and somebody draws water and, uh, and then... Um, uh, News is rushed home of the arrival of the stranger. A feast is laid out. That happens, by the way, in the wooing of Rebecca story. And uh, uh, at the end of the feast, or not long after the feast, betrothal conditions are, are agreed on. Now, what's going on here? When I first worked on biblical narrative uh, back at the end of the 1970s, I found a little structuralist book by a man named Robert Culley, uh, where he had done some reading in studies of uh, West African oral storytelling. And he had discovered that, that um, the same story was told, but as it was repeated, the names got changed and some of the details got scrambled. And then he proposed that something similar happen in the Bible, and even laid out a table of repeated stories to show 
the, the preponderance of repetitions. When I looked at, the at the, his tapes, I said, he's onto something and he didn't see what he was onto. Because, well, to begin with, I should stress that every evidence indicates these stories were literary productions. That is, in the sense that they're the consequence of writing. There may be an oral tradition that stands a few centuries behind them, but they are the, the work of a literary, literate and literary culture. And uh, what struck me, and I'm still persuaded of this, and over the years since I, I, I've written this out, I, I think a good many people in biblical studies have become persuaded, is that there's an actual convention it's again a convention that we forgot. And uh, groping at the time for a name, I, I borrowed a term from Homer scholarship and called it type scene. Uh, that is, uh, I, I won't trouble you with, with the Homeric side of it, um, which is a little bit different. Uh, at certain crucial junctures in the life of the hero, uh, there, a scene occurs in which the audience and the storyteller, or the writer, I really should say, understood that a sequence of narrative motifs was going to be followed out. Only what happens is that in each specific instance of the type scene, modifications of the schema are made that are strictly appropriate to the particular story and the particular character. That's very abstract. I'll try to illustrate it, uh, not with the example I used uh, years ago in my book on biblical narrative, but with another, what I'm gonna call the uh, annunciation type scene. Now, I call it annunciation, not only, as you would say in Hebrew, uh, to, to, to be pr provocative, but uh, because we're all familiar with the uh, annunciation as a, a, um, a, an iconographically defined topic in, in Christian painting where uh, the elements are pretty much the same. The angel Gabriel is, comes in from the upper left-hand corner. Mary is usually kneeling or sitting and almost always wearing a blue gown, etc. Well, uh, the repetition of elements that you get in iconography, I think, is a, uh, an interesting, if loose, analogy with what goes on here. So, here's the schema of the Annunciation type scene. Motif one, uh, you have a long barren wife. Optional motif 1A, there could be a fertile co-wife, which would make the wife's dilemma all the more painful. Uh, motif two, an oracle or an angel or a man of God comes to the woman and says something to the effect, and here there is usually a verbal formula, at this time next year you will be embracing a son. Motif three, it's, it seems breathtakingly simple, is, and so-and-so knew his wife, 
in the sexual sense, of course. And she conceived and bore a son, and she called his name uh, John Doe, or whatever. Now, uh, the, the, f the first instance, uh, I don't say it's the instance on which the others are modeled, it's just the first instance in sequence in the stories, is um, uh, Sarah and Abraham. And now, th there are a number of ways in which this uh, instance of the Annunciation scene differs from the others. The first is this is the only Annunciation in which the, um, uh, the future mother is not only long barren, as it turns out, I would guess, three quarters of a century, but she's 90 years old. She's many decades post-menopausal. So to begin with, this signals to us that, that uh, the miraculous character of the event here is absolutely spectacular. Two other features uh, of, of this uh, version of it we're mentioning. The first is that since this is a matriarchal scene, the revelation is always to the woman, but not here. That is here, uh, God, as it turns out himself, speaks to Abraham. And uh, Sarah, listening at the tent flap, eavesdrops on her own annunciation. Maybe there was some sense that, that in this story of the founding father of the nation, the father had to be front and center. Uh, also, perhaps, it's a way of highlighting Sarah's bitterness, which comes out when she says, after being shriveled, shall I know pleasure, and, and my husband is an old man. Uh, the third difference of this version from all the others is it's interrupted by three longish narrative episodes before the fulfillment motif. Uh, and uh, she bore a son, called his name Isaac. Uh, and that postponement, first there's the story of Sodom and Gomorrah, then there's the story uh, of Lot's daughters, and then there's the story of Avimelech and Abraham and Sarah and Grar. I think, among other things, heightens the suspense from chapter 12 on in Genesis, we've been waiting and waiting. When is this divine promise of seed to Abraham and a great nation will come forth for me? When is it going to be fulfilled? And we're still waiting with bated breath for another three chapters. Now, the next version of the story is Rebecca and Isaac. And there... Uh, Rebecca has been barren a long time. Uh, we learn at the end of the story it's 20 years, which is a frightfully long time. Uh, and uh, Isaac entreats the Lord on her behalf, and he's answered, and she becomes pregnant. Halfway through pregnancy, or maybe a little more than halfway, uh, w with the twins, she feels that this clashing in, in her womb uh, and she goes to an oracle to find out what it's all about. And the oracle says, that there are two uh, peoples in your womb, two uh, uh, nations w will emerge from uh, within you, uh, etc. Uh, now, here, and only here, the Annunciation 
comes not before conception, but in mid-pregnancy. And it has to do not with the fact of conception, but with the fate of, of the, the children who are going to be born. And I think that has to do with, with the, the Jacob Esau story. That is, what's paramount there is the destiny of struggle between the twins. So the Annunciation is directed to that rather th than to, to conception. Uh, okay, two more instances and then I, I will uh, conclude. Hannah and Elkanah at the beginning of 1 uh, Samuel. That's an instance where there's a fertile co-wife, uh, Penina, who actually provokes, uh, makes fun of Hannah because she, she's childless. And uh, you, you remember she comes to the temple at, at Shiloh, Shiloh and prays silently, something that was not generally done in the ancient world. Uh, and the priest Elkanah sees her, and at first, with her lips moving, mumbling, it's sort of like the way we, we react until we got used to, to handless cell phones. You know, you see somebody walking down the street, seemingly talking to, to herself or to himself. Uh, and, and he says, uh, how long are you going to be drunk? Yeah, get rid of your, your, your uh, liquor. And she says, I, I am not drunk, I'm a woman uh, uh, w with uh, a hard fate, uh, an embittered w woman, uh, and I'm requesting something of the Lord. And he immediately says, the Lord will grant your request. There's something really strange there. In this instance, the Annunciation comes through a kind of man of God, Elkanah, who is, I, I'm sorry, a, uh, Eli, who is the priest at, at the, the sanctuary at Shiloh. But there are two things wrong with this man of God, this priest. The first is he totally misconstrues what she's doing at the beginning, uh, uh, unjustly accuses her of, of drunkenness, and then he says, the Lord will grant your request. But what is her request? He didn't even ask her. So what you have is an ignorant conduit of the divine promise of seed. Now why? Well, if you think about the story, the, the main thrust of the story is the displacement of the authority of priesthood by the authority of prophecy. That, that is, uh, Eli is not doing so well as a priest, and he has two crooked sons, as it turns out. Uh, and he will be displaced by the child who is to be born, Samuel, who as prophet becomes leader of Israel. So the fact that we have a, a, a kind of uh, uh, blind and impercipient um, uh, annunciator in the Annunciation motif of the story is beautifully tuned to the story. My last example, the Annunciation of the birth of Samuel. Now there, a woman who was never given a name, and I believe it's not out of sexism, uh, uh, but in order to give the, the writer the opportunity to refer to her every time that, that he mentions her as the woman, Haisha, because I think the genders are extremely important in this whole story and in the unfolding story of Samson. 
So she meets somebody whom she takes to be a man of God. In fact, he's a divine messenger, a, an angel. And he tells her, she's childless, uh, that, that according to the formula, she will uh, conceive and bear a son. And meanwhile, he's, she, he, the angel gives instructions both for her and the child. He says, stay away from all wine and hard drink and the son who is born will be a nazir to God. Uh, he will taste no wine, and uh, he uh, will, um, uh, and no razor will go up on his head. No razor will touch his head. So she rushes home. She tells Manoach, her husband, and he says, I gotta see this guy. Take me to him. But again, the way the story's set up, the angel again reveals himself to her rather than to him and, then, and she has to lead Manoach out to the confrontation and Manoach says well what's this all about what are we supposed to do with this kid and the angel says patiently I think haven't I said this to you already uh, more or less I'm paraphrasing the Hebrew but something like that he says uh, he will be a nazir to God and he will drink no, no uh, 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 wine or hard liquor and he doesn't mention the business about the razor As, uh, that's another interesting instance of repetition with variation and so this ultimate secret which will eventually be a secret that a woman obtains and then will destroy Samson is a secret shared by the divine messenger and the, the, the future mother and not imparted to the husband. Well, uh, at that point, the husband says, well, can we offer you something to, to, to eat? And he says, no, I, I won't touch a thing. And then uh, they, they prepare a little uh, stone altar in the field and in, in a pyrotechnic display, the divine messenger goes whoosh, as in a comic strip, up into the heavens in a column of flame. At that point, the husband flings himself. Uh, all the while, they've been referring to him as a man of God, not a, as an angel. The, at that point, the husband flings himself on the ground and he says, you know, we, we will surely die because we have seen the face of God and how can we live? And the woman, I always imagine her poking him with, with her elbow, says to him, come on, if he were going to, to put us to death, would he have given us the, the, this instruction and would he have shown us all these things? And of course, she's perfectly right. Now, why is this particular pitching of the Annunciation type scene an apt opening to the story of Samson? I believe that it, it's a virtually comic version of the Annunciation type scene. And the comedy comes from exposing male stupidity. Uh, and this, and again, that's the tactical advantage of constantly referring to her as the woman, the woman. Uh, the very next thing that will happen is that Samson will be born and in half a verse will grow up and he will see a woman a Philistine woman, and get himself into deep trouble. Uh, so uh, we have a guy who is uh, a, a, a superhero on the muscle level, 
but who lacks something uh, on another level. And, and, and I think the behavior of his father, the, the virtually comic behavior of his father in the um, Annunciation scene is a clue in to this. So I hope these examples, both the microscopic and the macroscopic one, have given you some sense of the liveliness and the, I think, both human and ultimately theological complexity of what's going on in the stories. Only you have to learn how to tune into the particular wavelength of biblical literature. So I believe very strongly, not in somebody telling you what a story or a poem means, but in somebody giving you a little toolkit which you can work with to figure out the meanings yourself. So I would strongly encourage you to do a very simple thing. The next time you read something in the Bible, whether it's poetry or prose narrative, Whenever you see something being repeated, ask yourself, well, is that a strict repetition? And if it's not a strict repetition, why the difference? And where does the difference lead? Thank you. Professor, Professor Alter is willing to uh, take uh, questions or respond to your comments but we must use these microphones. So uh, we'll start over there. Anyone want to ask a question? You can start over here if you like. Okay, there, go ahead. Thank you for this uh, very enlightening uh, expose. I, I was wondering whether in your uh, feeling the uh, common occurrence of these stylistic patterns suggest a common authorship or would it be like your modern fairy tales where many authors use the same kind of formulas and that would be uh, recognized. Yeah, I, I think it's pretty clear that it's uh, the, the latter. I mean, uh, although I don't make much of it in my work, only rarely, I, I, mean, I certainly don't debate the scholarly consensus that the, the, the Torah itself is a composite, well, maybe the word that I prefer to use is a weaving together of four different strands that were originally independent literary documents. And uh, then it would be very far-fetched to imagine that the book of Judges was written by the same author as, um, uh, or, or authors uh, as Genesis, e even though Richard Elliott Friedman, who used to be down the coast, uh, in a book called The Hidden Book in the Bible has kind of made an argument to, to that effect. So I, I think it's just different writers working with the same sets of conventions. Yes. Uh, with reference to um, Isaac's blessing of Jacob, I'm wondering if the mother's words of blessing in the presence of God might um, be a commentary or an explanation of the current meaning of blessing from my essential self? Um, well, I wouldn't exclude that as a possibility, but um, here's what I would respond to that. E even if it's a kind of, let's say, a gloss or an interpretation uh, of, of the first phrase, 
the, the fact of the matter is, is you know, linguists will, will tell you this, not just literary scholars. Um, there, there are no true synonyms in any language. Um, well, let me give that, go back to that kind of silly example I gave of an extreme case, six and half a dozen. Now, of course, on one level, if you're doing arithmetic, six and half a dozen are absolute synonyms. But, you know, if you're speaking and you say, you say there's six people in the room, or there are half a dozen people in the room, it's not quite the same thing. That, that is, the half a dozen doesn't quite commit to the same standard of numerical precision. It has a certain re relaxed character or informality. So I would say this, that even if on some level uh, R Rebecca may be explaining uh, or unpacking the meaning uh, of... Uh, my essential self uh, will, will bless you. She chooses a term that has a particular theological weight. I guess I'll go left to right this way. Yeah. Thank you so much for being here. It's, it's really fascinating. Um, my question is, um, I've heard that the... Um, Septuagint and the Coptic and the Syriac are kind of in agreement, whereas the Masoretic text is different. So, but the Septuagint and which other one? The Coptic and the Syriac. Oh, the Coptic. Yeah. Are kind of all in agreement, mm -hmm. and other versions as well. And the Masoretic mm -hmm. is not in agreement with with those. And my question is, how accurate and valid do you feel the Masoretic? Oh, text? okay, that's a good. That is, uh, really behind this question lies a, a fundamental methodological issue. W when you're doing literary analysis of the Bible, especially if it involves minute textual details, how confident can you be that the, the Masoretic text of the Bible, the, the, re the received text of the Bible, is the... the actual text that, that, the, um, uh, that the original writers uh, composed. Now, I, I don't know much about the Coptic text. Uh, um, the, the, the Septuagint, of course, let me explain for those who, who are not into this kind of thing, if, that the Septuagint is the very first translation done uh, of the Bible in the third century BCE. It was done in Alexandria, and it was a Jewish translation, even though it then became the Christian Bible for a while. Uh, it was, and the reason why it was done was because the Jews, the substantial Jewish community of Alexandria had lost Hebrew. Now, from time to time, I mean, I always, when I work with the text, I, I always check to see what the Septuagint reading is. And for, from time to time, you see that it's pretty convincing that they had a more reliable version at that point. But you have to be very careful, because we don't have the Hebrew that they had in front of them. We can only infer it. And um, any translator, as I can tell you from experience, uh, is liable to 
solve textual cruces, textual difficulties, by in some way or another uh, simplifying the text uh, uh, and imagining something that, that wasn't there. And I think that this often does happen with the Septuagint. So I, I certainly would not say that the Septuagint as a rule is more authentic than, than the Masoretic text. But occasionally it is. And, and I'll give you one example for, from Genesis. In, in the Cain and Abel story, this is one of the, the few instances in my translation of the Torah in which I adopted a Septuagint reading instead of the Masoretic. At the beginning of the Cain and Abel story, the Masoretic text says, um, and Cain said to Abel, and then bam, he kills him. Now, there is no other place in the entire Hebrew Bible where we have the formula for introducing speech and then no speech follows it. The, the way the Septuagint reads is, and Cain said to Abel, let us go out to the field. And that, that seems to be just utterly convincing in terms of the, the way speech is always introduced in, in the Bible. So, so there I think they had it right. I'll return to the tradition of this side of the room and return to your simple example of um, the stealing of the blessing. When you said, am I talking the microphone okay? Yeah, okay. you're fine. Okay. Um, when you said that the omitted text was less, an omission was less significant, and I kind of wonder what the justification of that was, and the example was that um, Isaac had said to prepare the meat in the way that I like it, or something like yeah, that, right, some detail right. about the preparation, and Rebecca had not repeated that to Jacob. And I'm thinking she could have been cleverly omitting that for a similar kind of reason, um, meaning that, for example, that Jacob would have been too intimidated. There's no way I can convince him if it ah, has to be that in that way. That occurred to me. Okay, thank I you. Think that Did everything everybody, uh, significant? Now, uh, let me say this: uh, in um, literary interpretation, I, I didn't want to give, give you the, the sense that, that you, you have a, a kind of uh, open sesame device. And that as soon as you use this device, you automatically get the, the, the right interpretation. So uh, there are judgment calls. And I think there, there certainly are instances when things are repeated where it seems the writer just wanted to speed it up to a little efficient. bit. Yeah. Uh, but that's uh, it's certainly a distinct possibility that... that uh, 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 since he, he knows or will know in a moment as his mother continues to speak that he's going to have to substitute lamb stew for game uh, if uh, that's, that's, the more I think about it the more I think it's kind of plausible that if his mother mentioned the kind that I love oh yeah that, 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 that tangy taste of, tennis, of venison uh, that, that, that will put him off thank you well the efficiency thing um, the issue I was thinking why would, it, why would they say it the first time if the words weren't that important you know to yeah, yeah. yeah I, very I, much I really enjoyed the talk I, I'd like to just follow this up with one more kind of general principle uh, 
when the kind of narrative that most of us read for our pleasure and our illumination, of course, is a novel. And uh, let's say uh, a novel might run, a short novel would run to 250 pages, which is already really considerably longer than the Hebrew text of all the book of Genesis. And many novels will be 400, 500, 600 pages. In that kind of uh, uh, large quantitative verbal scale, the individual word has to have a little bit less weight. I don't say it's, it's uh, inconsequential, but you, you read novels fairly fast. I think most of us do. You know, we get into the narrative momentum and move on rapidly. Whereas uh, I, I think that biblical narrative as terse and economical as it is, was fashioned in such a way that precisely what the last questioner asked, why was the phrase, uh, uh, as I love, the kind I love, stuck in there, and then why was it left out? It's not a silly or an over-ingenious question to ask. So that's another thing you can keep in mind as you read the Bible. Thanks.